Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. A quick but important announcement before we start the show, one that we're really excited about. We are soon going to be launching a new long-form-only podcast to accompany Alpha Chat. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because the two most common kinds of feedback that we've been receiving from listeners of Alpha Chat directly contradict each other. So on the one hand, people really seem to like the deep and very long chat of nearly an hour that we had with Joe Stiglitz, and they wanted more like that. But on the other hand, a lot of people also started telling us that they found Alpha Chat just a bit too long. So we've decided to spin off a podcast for the longer, wonkier conversations about business and economics. We're going to call it Alpha Chatterbox. We hope you like it. And Alpha Chat itself, the podcast you're now listening to, will be closer to 30 or 40 minutes rather than an hour from here on out. And it'll continue to include timely, punchy, newsy, but hopefully well-informed segments. And speaking of those segments, let's talk about today's show. First up, a brief excerpt from one of those long-form interviews that we just talked about and that we recorded for the new podcast. It was a really fantastic 90-minute chat with Martin Wolf, the FT's chief economics commentator, who has just finished a new afterword for his book, The Shifts and the Shocks, that came out last year. And we're going to play a couple of clips from that discussion. Next, a quick chat with FT reporter David Crow about how comments from Hillary Clinton pledging to crack down on the cost of prescription drugs if she becomes president sent biotech stocks plunging earlier this week. And then finally, a special treat, Robert Schiller, the economist and Nobel laureate, is interviewed by the FT's John Authors about Schiller's new book, Fishing for Fools. Stick around. Lots of great stuff on today's show. And in the first segment, a couple of clips from our long chat with Martin Wolf, the entirety of which we'll be releasing soon. In this first bit, I asked Martin about his personal history and the values that guide his writing on economics and finance. Here it is. So we're going to talk about some very dense themes from finance and economics. But before we do, I want to start with your introduction to the book, where you are, I think, personally revealing in a way that is rare for you, probably because your column's you know, have space considerations, right? You can't, you don't have the space, the room to do this. So there's a lovely passage where you talk about your own personal values, how they were informed by your family. You mentioned your father, Edmund Wolf, Jewish refugee from Austria. And I think you described his views as anti-fanatical and pro-enlightenment. Can you just share a little bit of that with our listeners? Just talk about how your own values, your own background has informed how you come to think about economics and finance. Yes, that's difficult to do briefly. But first, I've always tried in my columns, I don't know whether this is right or wrong, but it's the way I think the job should be done, not to make them about me, uh, to make them about the analysis. Because if you're writing columns over the years, you don't want people to believe what you're saying 
because it's you. Authority is, I think, worthless. You you have to provide evidence and arguments. But a book is a different thing. If, if you're persuading someone to read a book of 350 pages of text or so, you want to interest them in the it, and to some extent interest them in the author. So most of it is rather dense analysis, as you said. But I've wanted to make clear why I got into economics in the first place, why I think it's important, why why it's always interested me, and what the political values are that are that drive me. And as you noted, uh, there are two or three absolutely central elements. First, I am directly, as it were, the child of the Depression and the Second World War and the disasters that went with that. And I see those disasters as very much rooted in economic catastrophes, the Great Depression and all the rest of it. So avoiding that sort of catastrophe is, I think, a prime function of economics. And that's why I was interested in it. I also uh, inherited, partly because of those disasters and from my father's own values, he was a writer, a journalist, a playwright, um, sort of basic belief that there are civilized values. Uh, those values are around the importance of individuals, of freedom, of democracy, but in a very unfanatical way. So uh, he perfectly well understood the role of the welfare state. So he was very much at that time a social democrat, but he was very also very fiercely anti-communist because he saw that as the, the fanaticism of our time, just as, of course, Nazism had been the fanaticism of his, uh, his youth and early adulthood. So uh, those values have always driven me to try and pursue the median, the middle way, and to try and uh, d justify and defend it, both uh, more broadly, but above all, in economics, which I see as sort of a necessary condition for social, economic, and political stability. You talk about how the threats to a widespread belief in a globalized economy, the liberal democratic values that you talk about, those threats have changed in shape, right? It used to be, as you said, collectivism, communism. Now it's income inequality, sluggish growth. I mean, was that sort of the impetus for writing the book itself? Yes, it is clearly true. As one gets older, one learns. Uh, 30 years, I didn't have this perspective. <laughs> I had not really taken on board how cumulatively, from really from the 80s onwards, the transformation of our economies, which in some respects, I think particularly globalization, was a good one. I've written about that in a previous book. But it was also unleashing forces which were, I think, increasingly obviously dangerous to the sort of democratic, peaceful, consensual societies I believe in. And here the main dangers were indeed rising uh, inequality and the emergence quite clearly of something that looks more and more like plutocracy, particularly here in the United States, but also to some extent in Europe, the rise of economic insecurity, and with that uh, increasingly intolerant, Attitudes in the population, which I understand, particularly sort of the, the re-emergence of a sort of populist right, and the enormous economic instability triggered by financial liberalization done in a very bad way in the context of a mismanaged global economy. And these things together, I thought, and this was the sort of revelation, in, of course, in September, October 2008, brought our economy very close to collapse. I mean, that I had never imagined, it was a lack of imagination, that we, we would get so close to the 30s. But at that time, and I think for the succeeding six months, we really were there. All the evidence showed that. 
And so I devoted all my writing then to trying to persuade people to take very decisive action. I don't say that it was particularly important, but the action was taken. But then I was very disappointed by the aftermath. We're still very much in this post-crisis world. And that was the experience that persuaded me, those values, those fears, and that experience, which persuaded me to write this book. The scope of the shifts and the shocks, for people who haven't read it yet, is immense. I mean, it's a vast book. Um, it's nothing short of your proposal for a comprehensive new intellectual framework for how to reconstruct the global monetary system, for how to structurally change the nature of economies in the developed world, but also in the emerging world. Did you set out to be so ambitious when you first started writing the book? Did you know that it would be this big no. project? No. Uh, what is now the first half, which is the account of the crisis and why it happened, was really where I started. And in a way, that was for me to explain to myself why I miss so much. There are, I think, one or two economists who got little bits of it. I don't think anyone got it all, uh, though some people whom I admire respect got quite close to it. But I felt that in, I understood some of it, but there were some very important things I hadn't understood. And the thing that I felt that I'd failed most to understand is how the macroeconomic forces, big forces of savings, investment, trade, the balance of payments, interact with money and finance. And that's something that I think it became missing in economics. So I had to study that. So that's what I planned to start with, to have an explanation of why this happened. But then as I read more and thought more, I became uh, more and more unre talked to pe more people. I became more and more dissatisfied with the system we have and became increasingly convinced that it's only a matter of time before new and huge, possibly even bigger crises emerge. So I thought it was very, very important to start uh, discussing serious reforms at all levels. I actually feel that the book is only partway through this program, but at least I felt I had to put down for people some sense that they should not be satisfied with where we are. And they should recognize that we we operate an inordinately fragile system, which is basically more or less designed to fail. Hey, listeners, it's Cardiff speaking to you directly again. This next clip, the second clip with Martin, is about his new afterword to the book, The Shifts and the Shocks, which was published at the end of last year. You should know that it's quite wonky and geared towards people with an economics background. So if that's not really your thing, you might want to fast forward six minutes to get to the next segment. Here's the clip. You make the point that people tend to view the recoveries in the U.S. and the U.K. sometimes through essentially rose-tinted glasses, that they see lower unemployment, obviously, than in the rest of Europe, and that they might conclude that, well, some of the policies that were employed there seem to have worked. Your point is that actually, if you look at the growth in living standards, that has still disappointed. And one of the reasons that we see the low unemployment is not because those economies are so strong, but because productivity growth has been so low, that if productivity growth had been you know, his, closer to its historical averages, then unemployment would have been a lot higher. And here's what you write. I want to quote something that you wrote there. Here's what you write about productivity growth and specifically weak demand. You say, weak demand caused weak supply as a result of low investment, and weak growth caused weak demand again, principally as a result of the weakness of investment. This then was a vicious circle. This is, I think, something that uh, Larry Summers, I think, called this like a reverse 
Say's law, Say's law being the idea that if there's supply side growth and the demand will show up magically or mysteriously or whatever, this is the exact opposite, is that weak demand leads to weaker potential growth, weaker supply. How big a problem is this and what do we do about it? I have a strong suspicion, though it goes very much against the way economists think about the cycle. It brings me back to sort of the way we used to think when I started economics in the 60s, that this is very, very important. There is a sort of, economists like to think there is this supply potential, which is sort of God-given, as it were. Given by, it's just out the laws there. of the universe. It's, there's a supply potential which is growing, and demand policy is just cyclical, and it's about making sure that because it's obviously very wasteful otherwise that demand goes close to supply. But uh, actually, this is a point Paul Krugman makes, but it's a more general point. If you actually look at the experience with large recessions, really large recessions and this is particularly dramatic in this case, but was also clear in the Asian crisis, is that estimates of potential supply converge on actual supply remarkably quickly. So if you looked at the estimates of potential supply that were being produced by the IMF back in 2006 or seven, or any such institution, the OECD, for example, they assumed quite recently that potential supply would go on growing as it did before, as it had done, actually, as I've shown in my various articles, for decades, decades and decades, and then that was a reasonable assumption. Now, uh, in most of our countries, actual supply is about uh, a sixth, roughly, a sixth below its pre-crisis trend, which is an enormous shortfall. And lo and behold, not surprisingly, because as I've said, um, given that actual potential supply is always assumed to be close to actual supply, we've now decided that potential supply is also pretty close to a sixth, a little bit better, but pretty close to a sixth less than we thought before. But you have to ask yourself, what happened, apart from the collapse in demand, to explain this staggering collapse in potential output? Uh, There are only two explanations for that. For some reason, that had nothing whatsoever to do with... Uh, the crisis, innovation, ideas, product, you know, just died. Well, that seems incredibly implausible. It seems uh, if it happened after 2007-8, surely it happened because of it. It must have been. Or it collapsed because investment collapsed. And we know investment collapsed in the aftermath of the crisis. It did everywhere. So my argument is that potential output, the supply potential of the economy, does indeed tend to converge on actual output. Because actually business doesn't waste much time developing the possibility of being able to produce much more than it ever thinks is going to be demanded. It just develops the capacity to produce what is demanded. It's also true, I think, pretty clear that the innovation slows in a, in a, in a huge crisis. And again, I think it's pretty obvious why in, in very depressing circumstances, business fights for survival. It doesn't do these fundamentally innovative long-term right. things. So I would argue, and this is very much in keeping with the way I think many Keynesians thought in the 50s and 60s, that actual supply and potential supply converge, and that actual supply is driven in the medium, short to medium term, by demand. So if we pursue really bad demand policies, it's not just about making a mess of our 
losing a lot relative to the potential supply which is God-given, we actually make potential supply worse. And that's incredibly important because it makes the argument for reacting very strongly to crises to get actual demand, actual supply, and so potential supply up, even more important because otherwise we lose enormous amount forever. And the evidence we have at the moment for the US and UK is that Unemployment is low, which I think is wonderful, though the U.S. has other labor market problems which are very important, but it looks as though the potential output in our uh, economies is about a sixth below the pre-crisis trends. The growth rates of potential output are also below trend, but that's a separate and very important point. And these are losses. I mean, this is enormous losses into perpetuity. And for this next segment... Our amazing producer, editor, music scorer, Amy Keene, gets in front of the mic for a change. She interviews the FT's reporter, David Crow about Hillary Clinton's comments earlier this week pledging to crack down on the cost of prescription drugs, which sent biotech stocks stumbling. We, we want companies to get a fair return. That's the way our system works. There's no excuse from going from $13.50 to $750 for one pill. Earlier this week, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic frontrunner in the race for the White House, vowed to crack down on the growing cost of prescription drugs and out-of-pocket medical expenses in the United States. Biotech stocks plunged on this news. I'm Amy Keene, and joining me in the FT's New York studio is David Crow, senior U.S. business correspondent. David, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, David, you've got a great uh, analysis piece on FT.com about policy intervention into the drug pricing debate in the U.S. Can you just explain what happened this week? So... Hillary went on to the talk shows on Sunday and and she foreshadowed the uh, fact that she was going to make a big intervention on drug pricing this week and and she did that on Tuesday. What was happening at the same time was a company called Turing Pharmaceuticals had bought a drug called Daraprim, which is typically given to very sick cancer and AIDS patients that have a a sort of a destabilized immune system to stop them getting a type of parasitic infection. Anyway, Turing bought this drug, which used to cost $13.50, and it jacked up the price to $750. And uh, the media got hold of this and uh, reported on that over the weekend. And Hillary did a tweet on Monday morning saying price gouging like this has to stop and I'll unveil a plan uh, tomorrow. And it was that, it was that tweet that sent investors running for the hills, wiping about $38 billion off of the value of biotech stocks on Monday. Just to stay on touring for a second, how did the company's chief executive, Martin Shkreli, handle this international outcry on the price rise? Well, Martin Shkreli is no stranger to controversy. He he quickly did a tour of, of U.S. television shows to defend the price hike, but he put a lot of people's backs up. He was smirking in a lot of the interviews. He was clearly having a lot of fun, and, and he wasn't uh, really listening to the arguments of those patients who are going to be uh, sort of pauper'd by by the decision. And, and from there, it has really spiraled out of control. He has become the sort of uh, hate figure, if you like, on Twitter uh, globally with with people uh, reporting on this from, you know, around the world. And on Tuesday night, it obviously became a bit too much for him. Uh, He went on to the nightly news show and and said that he was going to cut the price. He didn't explain by how much, and he still said he was going to turn a profit. So we don't really know where the, the drug will end up settling. 
And then for someone so publicity hungry, he, he did something very odd. He effectively turned off his Twitter. He exactly. blocked people from following him. It's a protected account now. It's a protected account. The, the big joke going around uh, among my contacts today is that he's going to charge $750 a tweet for people to read his uh, utterances. So in all of this, how have the pharmaceutical companies responded? Well, the pharmaceutical companies are, are sort of quite angry at, at Martin uh, Shkreli. But they argue that there still needs to be high pricing for innovative drugs. You know, there still needs to be a reward for drugs that turn cancer from a life-threatening illness to a chronic illness. And if someone comes along with that drug, they should be rewarded. And so they're sort of, I think that they're edging towards what's going to have to be a grand bargain, where this sort of price gouging, where you take a drug that's relatively cheap, that, that's old, that's off patent, and you and you you jack up the price overnight. They'll need to find a way of stopping that if they're going to create the headroom in the system to really reward the the science and the innovation that unearths those drugs that will save and alter lives. Mrs. Clinton is not the you know the only candidate to be critical of drug prices. Bernie Sanders has come out as one of her fellow uh, competitors in the in the Democratic race. What do you think the, is the viability of whether it's Mrs. Clinton's plan or another candidate's plan? I think Hillary's plan has been knocking around for some years now. It's it's sort of taken off of the peg of a a Democrat think tank. And, you know, there's some interesting ideas in there, a $250 a month cap on out-of-pocket expenses for chronically ill patients and, and a sort of rule that pharmaceutical companies have to spend more money on research and development rather than commercials. Anyone that lives in, in the U.S. knows that, that the television is wall-to-wall pharmaceutical commercials these days. But a lot of this won't see the light of day. Hillary is a presumptive front-runner and by no means uh, a shoe-in. And uh, there's uh, several elections before she gets the keys to the White House and then uh, a sort of a gridlocked Washington. But what it has done is it has brought to the fore the fact that there is already tension in the system, that those who pay for drugs, that's the employers and the health insurers, are already saying this is getting out of hand, we can't afford it, and we have to find ways of driving down the cost. And that, regardless of who ends up in the White House, is a dynamic that is not going to go away anytime soon. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And you can read David's article at ft.com forward slash companies. Thank you, David. That was from our FT News podcast. Thanks, Amy. And finally, the FT's chief investment commentator, John Authors, sits down with Robert Schiller, who came to our New York studios for an interview about his new book, Fishing for Fools, co-authored with George Akerlof. Hello, I'm John Authors, the senior investment commentator here at the FT, and I'm going to be interviewing a figure who I know causes very great interest for many of our listeners, Professor Robert Schiller of Yale University. Obviously very famous and indeed a Nobel laureate for his work on bubbles. He has now recently published a book jointly with another economics laureate, George Akerlof, called Fishing for Fools. Both those words spelt with a PH, not an F, which appears to be really a fascinating and quite radical criticism of free markets. Professor Schiller, thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. Let's start. Could you define for me what you mean in this book, what you and George Akerlof in this book mean by the word fishing with a PH? Fishing is a, about a 20-year-old word, came in with the internet, and it refers to a kind of scam to get you to reveal personal information. It's an example of manipulation and deception. 
But we want to use it more, the term more broadly or metaphorically, because I think people are so well aware of this computer phishing for a broader form of manipulation and deception that is not so easily apparent. That leads on, many of us are fools with a PH, i.e. we are prone to be fished. Take me through the concept of the fishing equilibrium, which seems to be central to this book. The idea is that most accounts of manipulators or deceivers are moralizing as if the cause of this was some lapse in moral fiber. That may sometimes be the cause, but more generally, it's really part of an equilibrium that is hard for individuals to deviate from because everybody else is doing it. Your competitors are doing some kind of manipulation or deception. Many firms operate under tight profit margins. You, as the manager of a company, feel a responsibility to your employees, your shareholders. So you wouldn't squander an opportunity to fish if it's not obviously illegal and if others are doing it anyway. So a fishing equilibrium comes when everybody has got away with as much manipulation as they can get away with. Well, I might put it a little differently. Yeah, that's right. But it's also that a fishing equilibrium is a sequence of equilibria as the technology improves. Everyone is experimenting right. with fishing, and they, they, they'll hit upon something. They may not understand why it uh, works. So, for example, you are, you are a manufacturer of pastries, okay? Right. Let's and, talk about Cinnabon. Yes, well, the first example in your Cinnabon, book. Cinnabon, yes. I, I thought maybe we shouldn't single them out because we're not claiming they're evil people. Right. They're very successful. They, that, that's what happens. They have something like 900 outlets all over the world. So they're a successful company. But all they make is cinnamon buns. I could instruct you to go and make cinnamon buns, and I, right. I'm sure they would come out fine. Yes. So it sounds like, what, what is that, it? That may not be quite <laughs> true, but there are many people you could instruct on that. Yes. But there's something they're doing which may be subtle. We think that one thing that they're doing is being very careful about location mm. and aroma. <laughs> so they put them in airports, for example, right where you're sitting. You might be waiting for a flight. Uh, it may be delayed. You know what kind of mood that puts you right. in. And so they've discovered that that kind of location works. And baking them on the premises so people can smell it. It's a way of creating demand that wasn't there yeah, now before. If, if you were selecting your environment, you wouldn't say, I want to have cinnamon bun odors thrust in my face <laughs> right. right at my weakest moment. But that's exactly what the free market system does. And it's an equilibrium. If we were to take Cinnabon out of the business, somebody else would do it. So it's an equilibrium that in many ways is harmful, ultimately. That we, It's an equilibrium which is reached when people have reached the limits of how much they can distort our preferences. And that harm has real consequences. We have an obesity epidemic, and medical authorities who study this list as among the most important causes of it is the availability of food. It's everywhere. This is just one example, yes. but not only is it everywhere, but it's designed by food scientists to be irresistible as possible. Nature right. doesn't make things that irresistible. They're creations of, of man, and they're... they're part of the fishing equilibrium. And it's, it's hard to be morally uh, censorious of people who really want to eat them because they've been designed to be really, really nice to, really nice to eat. Even and not only them. that, but they anticipate your thoughts. You know, inside your mind, you've got a voice, one voice saying, I'm on a diet, I'm not going to do it. And another voice in your mind says, hey, live a little. You know, you got to enjoy yourself. So they put that up in their slogan. Their slogan is, 
life needs frosting. And really? so they're anticipating, they're, they're jumping into the debate in your mind and yeah. uh, reminding uh, the, of the things that, right. that we can use as rationalizations to dispense with self-control. This is a book that's written by two technical economists. There's no map in here. There are no Greek letters. It's crammed with anecdote like this. So there are many examples beyond Cinnabon where we were talking about this in the non-financial sphere. If we move to the financial sphere, perhaps the most interesting example you trace through is Goldman Sachs and its notorious abacus transaction in which it persuaded people to uh, take the other side of of a bet on mortgages where John Paulson, the very famous hedge fund manager, had decided exactly what mortgages he wanted to bet against. How does your theory of fishing equilibrium, how does the notion of fishing for fools fit what happened there and how does it inform how we should have responded? This is an example of a informational fool rather than a psychological fool. So Paulson, now Paulson I think, is completely innocent of wrongdoing. He merely went to Goldman with a list of securities that he thought were going to blow up, <laughs> okay? Right. Uh, they had a chance of losing all of their value or, or substantial part of it. And the market didn't seem aware of that. So he said, I would like to short these somehow, you know? So Goldman, apparently, now I'm not going to judge the case. I think it was a settlement. Goldman did settle with the yes. SEC on this. But uh, it, 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 it appears that Goldman was not sufficiently informative to the people taking the other side. They didn't come out and say, you know, there's another really smart guy who wants to short these because he thinks they're awful. They didn't tell them that. that that's fishing. It's, it's suppressing. They just said, you want to invest in mortgage securities? We have a product for you. Now, how do we deal with this situation? There is long-standing jurisprudence in, in the U.S., where we are now, of caveat emptor. In the case of the, uh, of the Goldman transaction, one of fools with a PH in this case sued and didn't win because, again, the, the phrase used was caveat emptor. Mm -hmm. They should have been more careful themselves. Are you suggesting that we should change that rule, that, that standard approach, if we want to deal with the problem of fishing? Well, caveat emptor, it's a Latin phrase, but mm. it actually came in, particularly in the United States in the early 19th century. Hmm. It, it means buyer beware. I think the original Marshall Supreme Court decision that yes, brought in the concept of caveat emptor so strongly in the United States was an idea that free markets are very important. We can't have lawsuits all the time. It's costly to society to have too many lawsuits. So the decision was, let's tell everybody, buyer beware. You can't sue someone who didn't tell you something about the product. As long as he wasn't lying, you can sue for lying. They, they wanted to just keep lawsuits inbound. But that, How, that appears to be an, an invitation to fishing. As that's the problem. It. That's the problem. Well, this, this was an early 19th century decision. As time went on, it's been modified. We've already moved back somewhat from caveat emptor because there are egregious examples right. of fishing it wasn't in the original concept. There's now a concept of implied warranty that when I put something on the market for a purpose, it should, a reasonable man should conclude that it at least fulfills some of that purpose and it's not worthless. We've stepped back from caveat emptor. But do we need to step further, I guess, is the question. Well, the, the thing is that there are still a lot of fishing products on the market. And I think they tend to stay on the market 
because they inhabit gray areas right. where it's not 100% clear. So one example is the example of a, a drug called Airborne right. that was sold to the general public with the admonition, take this before you board an airplane and it will prevent you from catching a cold or the flu on the airplane. Then the Center for Science in the Public Interest demanded proof from them that it would have any such effect because they look at the ingredients and it's a bunch of vitamins and herbs. Where's the evidence? And they had no evidence. So they were forced to take that off. But they weren't forced to shut down because their product is safe. It contains vitamins, which right. might be good for, you know, for some people it's good. But they can't lie about it. Well, and then they have to tone down their lie. They aren't actually lying. But if you read their package, it shows a picture of a man sniffling, something like that. You know, it's, it suggests, and they continue the business. The reason why I bring up that example is I think it is subtle, that it's costly to deal with fishing for a government regulator. No. And so maybe what we need is a bigger budget for regulators. As the society gets more affluent, we'll have higher standards for preventing fishing. So this obviously we begin to enter very interesting political terrain here. Plainly, you've nailed here what appears to be a very serious problem with free markets, which particularly in this country, many politicians take as a, as a given that free markets are, are good. There's one fascinating quote that you include here from uh, the Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Cardozo from 1889, when he said, we do not demand absolute community as under socialism, for that runs counter to the incentivization of economic action. And then in the voices of your, yourself and George Akhoff say, we would say there must be a moral community, yeah. and within that, a free market of individual action. That moral community can push back against fishing. What does that imply for political society? Where do we draw the limits? How far can a government go in overriding a free market decision? Well, societies that are countries that have a strong civil society can account themselves as blessed. Right. Uh, these are people, they take interest in what's happening in society and they consider the government as replaceable anytime when they're, they're not doing well. And we will vote and we will attend meetings and uh, we will keep up on information. It's a difficult question for political scientists to ascertain why is civil society stronger in some countries than others. It, it is a reminder that the alternative to vulgar capitalism is there's another alternative besides you know, socialism, which is an uh, extreme form of government management. Is this a third way with a capital T and a capital W, or what, what are we talking <laughs> well, we about didn't, We didn't give it a name like that. We think that we already have indications of, of this way. We give many examples in the book of government actions that they seem to be take the form of a social movement. There is someone probably from outside the government, well, not necessarily, but someone who speaks up about a problem, writes a book about it, right. writes uh, scientific research that demonstrates the problem, is noisy about it, people start talking, they eventually change it. Like, for example, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States was set up in 1906, and th but there were champions of this, people who were not for profit, they were doing this out of moral purpose. So we talk about Harvey Washington right. Wiley, who was actually an employee at the Department of Agriculture, but he did some experiments that demonstrated the unsafety of food dramatically and got publicity for them. And then that created a system of government testing of foods and drugs for safety, which was an enormous step forward. And which eventually, as you detail, helped in the, the battle against big tobacco another half century yeah. after that, which is another classic example of, of fishing. Tobacco industry back then 
was publishing ads that were deliberately designed to confuse. So for example, while there were scientists, sincere scientists pointing out the dangers of tobacco, they managed to find some other scientists who would take the other side right. and would say that it's all doubtful. Uh, and they, they seem to be motivated by, I don't know what, money or, uh, and, and, but they got publicity. This is how phishing takes place informationally. They blasted forth this information from people that were sympathetic to tobacco. You mentioned early on that there are two basic forms of phishing, informational phishing, which yeah. I guess is what George Akerlof was made his reputation about, that eliminating information asymmetries, making sure people are informed. You can see there are ways regulators and governments can help deal with informational phishing. What about psychological phishing? Though? Yeah. You're, you're, you're preying on natural human weaknesses that we all have. You're preying on errors of cognition that we all have. How does one combat psychological phishing while still keeping the many benefits that we all agree there are in yeah. uh, having a market mechanism. Well, we like to have an optimistic tone for our book. I, mean, I don't know that we can completely deal with it, mm. but we can't. There are things like you put taxes on alcoholic beverages. That's an old idea. It used to be done for revenue. Then it became thought of as a syntax or something trying to encourage people not to drink so much. But taxes on alcoholic beverages, at least in the United States, have gotten rather low. They're not really, you know, we could just raise them. Now, that might not be the ideal thing to do, but we've made a lot of progress in dealing with alcohol. There's an organization called Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. That's MAD. Mm. We've managed to uh, put strict laws on drunk driving. There was the Ad Council. Now, this is a business organization in the United States. Mm. Launched a public interest ad campaign for what's called the designated driver. It modeled behavior for them. Most ads are modeling drinking right. <laughs> or other uh, because they profit from that. But we give credit to the Ad Council for modeling that behavior. And it, it has worked. People really do that. So in terms of, I mean, there was a famous book a few years ago by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler called Nudge, the idea that government can at least, we can give people freedom to smoke and drink if that's what they really want to do, but you can nudge them away from doing these bad, bad things for themselves. Is that the kind of idea you have for attacking psychological phishing is governments nudge people out of, away from their bad habits. Well, I love the uh, Sunstein-Thaler book, Nudge. Uh, I assign it to my class, actually. I don't know that I like their term that they use to describe it. They, they call it libertarian paternalism. They're putting together what seem to be exact, libertarians say give people exactly what the free markets offer. Paternalism suggests the government is a parent. But I think that putting those two together, but in terms of it doesn't fishing, sound like the best way to uh, describe it. But in terms of fighting fishing, how paternalistic are you prepared to well, be? Well, see, it's, when you say paternalistic, that takes the family as a metaphor yeah. for society. But we're all grown-ups in the society, so I, I don't know that I like the metaphor. It seems to me that it's more civil society that right. we, we want. So the word civil society, societas civilis from Cicero, is an old, old idea that in a healthy society, uh, even though we're all equals, mm. it's not a government acting as a, a father. It's us hiring, brother, electing people, electing people who will carry out what we as a community want. And of course, it should be gentle. It should be nudges, as you say. We don't want to outlaw alcohol. Uh, we want to just be careful with it and encourage people, nudge them to be more careful with it. And providing democracy works, you can be confident that the government will not go beyond nudging towards the kind of big brother tactics that we obviously don't want to see happen. 
Yes. Uh, so democracy is an important institution that I find somewhat mysterious that it works as well as it does. But it, it does seem to work. And we do get benefits that come. Okay. Now I have just one final question. This, this is a, an unusual book for two technical economists to have written. You're presumably hoping to reach a broad audience. And I was also fascinated by the lengths to which you'd gone to uh, explore how uh, fishing works. I mean, in your case, I believe you, you said you'd even sampled some of your cat's cat food to <laughs> see right. whether it tasted like the adverts <laughs> said it did. Is this ultimately an attempt to tell a story? Any, any financial journalist will confirm that the only way you can get people to understand financial right. concepts is by presenting us a story. That enables people to be fished, but it also enables people to be informed. Is that ultimately what you're trying to do here, trying to explain to people that, that free markets do have their deficiencies and that society has a right, right. sometimes to over deal with that or override it? Well, I don't think we should be ashamed that we're telling stories because as many psychologists have written, there is a narrative basis for human thinking. So if we want to relate to others, and we're people, right? we want to tell a story. But I think the problem is that we've been told another story. We live in a wonderful age, mm. and it's, you know, our, our health has improved, our, our food has improved, our, everything is better than it was in the past. But why is that? And there's a tendency for people to think too extremely that, oh, that's just the outcome of free markets, of everyone pursuing their own self-interest. But we don't think that that's, everyone is so selfish as that model presumes. And that, in fact, the success of the so-called free market economy that we've lived in has always been involved with people who say to themselves, you know, I don't need to be rich. I, I want to do something good for society. And who start movements, who, who communicate with other people and get society going. It's not in the pure free market model. And people ought to know the history of this. Professor Schiller, I have to say, I've found this one of the most entertaining books I've read in a, in a long time. I think some people are going to hate it and some people are going to love it. I would strongly recommend to everybody listening that they read it, though. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And in today's follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasek is here to tell us all the ways in which we can do things better. She's half-ombudsman half genial colleague. Amelia, how and, are you? And friend. And friend. friend and of friend, Alpha of Chat. course. And friend of mine and of Alpha Chat. Uh, okay, so last week's uh, episode, what stood out? So I thought the Internet Stars segment was fantastic. I really enjoyed it for a lot of thought. One thing I would say about it is normally I'm giving you a hard time about bringing economic theory to the real world. And in this case, I would say it would have been nice to have some economic theory brought to the rise of the internet stars. The other so, way around, you mean? Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I thought it was really, really interesting. And I'm just wondering whether much of what's going on is more, is more, is more, like everything on the internet, and then eventually gravity catches up or economic theory catches up, just like the wave of bloggers, you know, a decade ago, and eventually they couldn't pay for the, the lifestyle they'd become used to right. with their blogging efforts, and the advertising fell away, and the clicks weren't there, and gradually became corporatized. I'd be curious, I'd love to hear a follow-up segment on what happens next with this sort of rise of platforms for video. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I also wonder if eventually we'll have a better sense of what the numbers actually are. So right now, this is, I think, heavily anecdotal driven, right? So you have these new 
YouTube stars who are being spotted by these talent agencies and now they're making movies and all these other kinds of things. But is it a story that will stay within its kind of narrow framework or is it something that's going to be a much bigger phenomenon? It's actually a great point. I don't actually know the answers to those questions, but maybe that's worth coming back to again in the future. Right. Well, maybe when you become a video star <laughs> next, we can test you. We can ask you about the economics of all of that. Some of those guys had 21 million viewers. Does the FT make any videos that have 21 million yeah, views? It's waiting for you. <laughs> little by little, we'll start Just chipping away at waiting it. Waiting for you and Martin Wolf. Okay. Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with that segment too. I thought Shannon uh, and Hannah did a great job on the piece. And it's a fascinating trend, especially if it's one that ends up taking off. Yeah, definitely worth watching. And, and what did you think about the final segment on the Fed's decision? Again, a bit wonky. I, I like most of our economic theory segments, you know. I was really interested in what Matt Klein was saying about inflation and does it matter? Right. Does it matter whether it ticks up or down? And I was thinking, okay, does that matter to me? How does that affect me? How does that affect you? You know, does that mean we'll should look forward to a pay rise next year, but at the same time, cost of living will go up? Will it? You know, where 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 are the kind of levers? Yeah. So this is something that's sort of constantly being relitigated by central bankers is the extent to which monetary policy actually does influence inflation and also the relationship between economic growth on the one hand and inflation on the other hand. It's something that was thought to be understood quite well for a very long period of time. Right. So Matt's point for our listeners was that, well, if the economy is chugging along quite nicely, if unemployment is going down, if growth as it was in the second quarter seems pretty healthy, why not raise rates? Because keeping rates low, it doesn't really seem to be solving any particular problem. Maybe inflation just doesn't matter. The other side of that argument could be, right, I'm not going to make that case here, but it could be, well, okay, but if the policy we're using now has kept inflation low and we have decent growth, why mess with that? We've just come out of this insanely severe damaging financial crisis and recession. It's been years since we've been at a place where unemployment was this low and close to the point where we would consider to be healthy or acceptable, and yet wages aren't growing and other parts of the labor market are still structurally damaged as far as we can tell. So why not just leave rates in place, especially since inflation itself is totally under control. It's not threatening. A lot of uncertainty throughout the world. So why mess with it if it's working? There, those are two totally plausible, totally reasonable sides to that debate. Um, maybe what we could have done better was to have said what I just now said in the follow-up segment, but said it during the actual segment. I was also a bit, in hindsight, whiny about this because we've been talking about the Fed for so long and so many other people have done it. I was a little bit anxious to get the heck out of that segment. Amelia Mahasek, always a pleasure. We'll see you back here next Thank week. Thank you, Cutter. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Again, we really encourage you to call us at 917-551-5012, or you can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Finally, you can tweet me at Cardiff Garcia. We're really looking forward to launching this second podcast. So if you've got ideas for it, if there's anybody that you want to hear from, somebody that you'd like us to sit down with, tell us about it. Tell us who it is. We always want to hear from you. And as you can see, we take your feedback seriously. It's because of your feedback that we're launching Alpha Chatterbox. So thank you for that. And please keep it coming. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Keene. This is her podcast. And once again, we are just talking in it. Thanks so much, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. And we'll see you here again next Friday for another episode of Alpha Chat. <laughs>